Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Uh, I do not preach very often, but I do get the privilege every now and then. And uh, with this um, series that we in, we are in, uh, you asked for it. There was a question that uh, really uh, resonated with me. And the question is, how do I defend what I believe? And the reason I like this is because uh, the basic uh, idea behind this topic is apologetics. Uh, For those of you who don't know, apologetics is uh, the argument or defense of something. And in this case, it's the defense of Christianity. Uh, The root, apologia, is the same place that we get the word apology from, like saying I'm sorry. But there's a little bit of a difference. This is much more of a defense attorney term, something like a legal term that a defendant would have made for them or that they would make themselves. Uh, full disclosure, a lot of what I'm going to be go- going over this morning comes from a class that I took in college called apologetics. Uh, that's, that's a tough one. There will be a test later, and that's the only question on it. No, uh, but this, the class was great. Uh, it was a full semester. It was taught by uh, Peter Kraft, who actually is one of the people who wrote the book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, which was the text for the class. So uh, if you heard correctly, it was a semester-long class, and we have roughly 40 minutes. So we will not be covering everything uh, that there is to cover or that was covered during that class. Can I get an amen? Amen. But I did want to uh, pull out a few important things that I learned in that class that can hopefully help set uh, some basis for you to defend your faith if it's challenged, and hopefully give you a few things that you can uh, pose to other people that might help them think, that might help them come to know Jesus. Uh, Before we get started, I want to lay a few ground rules and limitations with apologetics. And the first and foremost is this. Perfect arguments and perfect reasoning will not always change minds and therefore hearts. Uh, An example of this uh, was a story that our professor would tell in class, which is about a brilliant young man. He was so smart, uh, only child, his parents loved him, but they were a little bit worried about him because all through his youth growing up, he was convinced that he was dead, that he was a walking corpse. Bright young man, but that's what he was convinced of. Uh, And so his parents were distraught, as I'm sure some of you would be if that's the state your child was in. So they brought him to a psychiatrist, and they talked for a while, and the psychiatrist said to the parents, you know, I've got a way, foolproof way, that we can, you know, change his mind. And so they said, all right, what what is it? What is it? And he said, send the kid to medical school. He's brilliant. He's going to pass all his classes with flying colors. He's going to ace every test. He's going to do fine. And then after he's done with that, come back and we'll talk. So they said, all right, okay. So he went eight years of college, top of his class, everything, learned a ton. Came back, sat down with the psychiatrist, and psychiatrist, you know, they started talking. He said, well, tell me about what you learned. So he starts describing, you know, the human body and all the different intricacies with it, that it, you know, can breathe, that it has vitals, that it bleeds, all these different things. He's like, okay, and that's only for a living body. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, of course. And the psychiatrist says, well, can you take your vitals? And so he does and gets all the readings, and he says, wait, but aren't you a corpse? It's like, yeah, but you have vitals. And the kid, you can just see the light bulb go off in his head. And he's like, oh my gosh, I've been wrong for all these years. Thank you so much. Corpses 
do have vitals. And the reason I tell that is because if you've ever had an argument or a conversation where you're trying to convince someone of something, uh, maybe it was politics, uh, maybe it was just about what the best football team is, you know, something like that. If someone believes something, you're going to have a very hard time convincing them, even with perfect reasoning and logic, to change their mind. Amen, indeed. The other thing is that the Bible talks about uh, people having a veil over their eyes, or that the Satan is actively trying to convince people of a lie. So it's a twofold problem, both because people are stubborn and because Satan is actively working against us when we talk about apologetics for Christianity. So this begs the question, if people have a hard time coming to Jesus and understanding through apologetics, why bother? The reason is because not everyone is resistant, and some people truly do start a relationship with Jesus through conversation and sound reasoning. And we see this clearly in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. It's a very long passage, but it's a good one. And it's verses 16 through 33. And it says this, now, Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So his reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing strange things to our ears. So we want to know what, the, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the strangers visiting there were used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So these people loved to talk about anything and everything. So Paul saw an opportunity, and it says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athena, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation." that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man." Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear more of you concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. So we see in this passage a couple things. First, Paul not only knew his stuff concerning the Bible, but he also knew enough of what others believed in order to find a common ground on which to begin their discussion. Paul meets the Athenians where they are, beginning with something they are familiar with, this idea of an unknown God. He then brings in the truths revealed in the scriptures to bring people to see truth. Without finding a starting point, people where people are in agreement, all arguments from reasoning will be forfeit. You cannot build truth on a lie. Even if the lie is not a lie at all, but actually truth, if the person you're talking to believes it to be a lie, there is no foundation and everything will eventually fall apart. The other thing that we see very clearly here is Paul knows his Bible. He goes through logically step by step to show the Athenians where these, uh, where they start and where the next step is taken clearly and succinctly. You know, he moves quickly through them and it tells us in the scriptures that not everyone followed the next logical step. It says that some people were lost on some of the points, specifically the resurrection, but he's able to build concisely through them, leading some people to truth. Paul is ready not only to start at a place where they understand, but to continue to hearken back where he mentions their own poets to things that they know and agree with and believe in. Paul is ready, like it says in 1 Peter 3.15, to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, that scripture, before you think it means that, all right, so everyone really needs to brush up on their logic, needs to know their Bible perfectly, has to become an apologist. I think that for most of us, that scripture, giving a defense of what you believe, an account of what you hope, that's talking about telling people why you love Jesus. It's just saying, listen, I was this way, Jesus came into my life, and now I'm totally different. Testimonies, testifying to the power of Jesus, is the way most of us will live out that scripture. But it doesn't mean that's the only way. And sometimes people need to reason and understand before they can believe. The last thing we see here is what we talked about before. Some people not only don't believe, but they sneer at what Paul is saying. I mean, this is something that I'm sure a lot of you have encountered. People who say, I think that's stupid. You tell them about what you believe, and they just say, no, nah, I don't believe that. Or you can say one thing about what you believe, and they're like, okay, you reach maybe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a big step. And people say, no, nah, I'm not going to follow you there. And, and that's all right. Some people aren't going to know that. But my hope is that with this, you can know with what we're going to talk about this morning, that faith and reason are actually allies. They're not enemies. It's not something that says, well, you believe that, I believe reason. Or the one that we hear a lot is, I believe science. That's kind of the hot word today, is science. And science is just reason. Uh, and, and the reason it's so important that we establish that faith and reason are allies is because if we don't start there, 
we're never going to move forward with anyone who doesn't believe. So that will be the first thing we establish. The next thing that we establish is going to be well, talking about the existence of God. The last thing we're going to talk about is the problem of evil. Now, there are a ton more things that we can talk about this morning. We talk about creation and evolution, miracles, providence versus free will, heaven, hell, the divinity of Christ. That's just to name a few. But again, we don't have time to talk about all that this morning. But rest assured that there are rational arguments that can be made regarding each one of those things. So hopefully this morning, even if you don't come or leave here, with all the answers, you'll leave here with an assurance that there are answers to be found. And in the information age we live in, it's a click away, it's a quick word search. You can even talk to Siri and say, hey Siri, show me arguments for the divinity of Christ. She can find them. She's pretty impressive. Not as impressive as hopefully what we'll talk about this morning, but I digress. So to start out, we're gonna talk about the fact that faith and reason are in fact allies. And in order to do that, we're going to define, define both faith and reason. Definitions are important in reasoning. They are the bedrock of reasoning. If we are talking with someone who has a different definition of a word we're using, we can't go anywhere from there because we will literally be talking about two different things. So we will start with faith. And on, the faith, on faith, there are two sides to faith. One is the act of faith. Two is the object of faith. Another way to say it is believing and what is believed. For us Christians, faith, as in the object of faith, is all things believed or all things revealed to us through the Bible. And we express these things in what are called prepositions. And prepositions are not expressions of the act of believing, but expressions of the content of what we believe. The opposite would be liturg liturgical and moral acts. Those would be believing, acting out our beliefs. It's like the difference of knowing or talking and doing. Does everyone get that distinction? I hope so, because we're going to keep moving. We get to uh, a finer point of these prepositions uh, and what they are and what they relate to is that they are not the ultimate object of our faith, but they are proximate objects of faith. What that means is there are a lot of prepositions in the Bible, and they all point to the ultimate object, which is one, and this ultimate object is God's word, singular, and God himself. So things like God is all-powerful, God is love, things like that, they don't work in the inverse. They point us to who God is, but love is not God. Power is not God. God is all-powerful. God is love, but it doesn't work the other way. The reason that's important is because it keeps us from confusing things. When we point to God by describing his nature, using these prepositions, these objects of our faith, it can show us things about God. It's similar to pointing to the moon. If you point to the moon, you can tell people that is where the moon is relative to where we are. You can point it out, you can show them, and they can see it. We would be pretty dumb if we ever confused our finger pointing to the moon with the moon itself. 
So while these things do a good job of helping us understand and therefore grow closer in relationship with God, we cannot confuse the prepositions, the statements of fact about God, with God himself. But each of these prepositions do reveal the character and nature of God. But them alone, they're useless and can even be harmful. The purpose of every preposition is to draw us closer to God. We need to actually know him. Each thing we say about God, we need to then act upon it. If we don't act upon it, it's like knowing and not doing, and our faith will therefore be dead. So that brings us to the act of faith, this idea of acting. And it is more than just believing. We believe a lot of things that we are not willing to die for and won't or or can't live out every moment. How many people in here think the mountains are beautiful? Who's going to die for that? Who lived that out this morning? Nobody. Nobody. So it's so much more than belief, this faith. But belief is part of it. And there are four distinguishing aspects of religious faith in the form of action. The first is emotional faith. And this is the feeling of assurance or of trust or confidence in a person. This includes like hoping, I hope for things, which is much greater than a wish. And it's peace which is much greater than calm. This is that feeling you have. Then it moves to one step up, which would be the intellectual. Intellectual is stronger than emotion because it's more stable. It's unchanging. It's like an anchor. Our feelings might be shaken, but we can still know in our minds what we believe, and we can know that truth. It is not an opinion. It's not subjective. It is objective. And this is where we get those prepositions for understanding the object of our faith. Volitional faith, this is the act of our will, where we are committed to obeying God. This is faithfulness or fidelity. This is where we see action take place. Interesting thing here is that we can know what is good. We can know what is right. We can know things about God, but our will can still act contrary. The final thing is heart faith. And this is the center of a person. It's the spot that the Holy Spirit works in and where we have the fundamental fundamental decision to say yes or no to Jesus. This is what Solomon talks about when he says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for from it flow the springs of life. Without heart faith, there is no saving faith, and so salvation is not possible. So the reason we talk about the object of our faith and the action of our faith is because we need to not confuse them, and oftentimes people do. You can say things and do things differently. The way we act doesn't always line up with the truth revealed in Scripture. And so when making these points and discussing these things, we need to point people, no, I'm not perfect, I don't live it out perfectly, but it is laid out perfectly, and there is a great argument there. So, the other part of this is reason. And if we're going to talk that reason and faith are allies, we need to know what reason is. Reason talks about all things that can be known. Basically, everything that we can figure out. And it's broken down into three kinds of reasoning. Aristotle called them the three acts of the mind. Things that are understood by reason, things that are discovered by reason, and things proved logically 
by reason. Now, there are examples in each of these categories uh, that of things that can be found by reason alone, by both faith and reason, and there are also things in each of these categories that can only be found through faith. So an example of in each of those things, things understood. We can understand what a star is made of by reason alone. We can, we can figure that out. We can see that the universe is well-ordered, both through reason and our observance of the world around us and by reading the scriptures. God created this world and he put it in order. So both in that, in that instance, both sides point to that conclusion. And the third thing, God's plan for salvation of mankind, that is found only through the scriptures. You cannot reason that out. Things that are discovered, you can discover that Jupiter is a planet by reason alone. The historic existence of Jesus is both discoverable outside the Bible and in the Bible. But how much God loves us can only be discovered through reading the scripture and divine revelation. The final thing, things proved, this would be like mathematical formulas, the Pythagorean theorem. That's something the Bible does not talk about, but it's still true and still can be proved. The soul does not die is something that we're not going to talk about all the reasoning behind it, but that can be proved both outside of the Bible and inside the Bible. But the fact that God is a trinity is something that is only proved through reading the scriptures. So, those are the three ways we think about things and understand the world around us. And the two main questions that we have to ask ourselves when comparing faith and reason, the first is how much of faith can be proved by reason? And what we just talked about before, the answer is some of it. It's not all of it, but it does give us a starting point. It gives us a place where we can start to bring people to know the truth of the scripture through reasoning. The other question is something that I th think we hear a lot from people who either hate God, hate Christians, hate religion, and it's this idea, can faith and reason contradict each other? This is a question that lots of people have considered all throughout time. And Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century uh, theologian and philosopher, uh, thought about this and had a great answer. And his argument he basically says that if both Christianity and reason are true, there can never be any real contradiction between them because truth cannot contradict truth. If one contradicts the other, the other ceases to be true. Now, it's important to note that he is speaking of these things, again, objectively and not subjectively. Everyone's heard the statement, to err is human. That is very true when thinking about reason and faith. We can either misunderstand our faith or misrepresent our faith, or we can misuse reason. So there are ways you can get off on either side, but it is not reason and faith alone that are responsible for that, but it's our understanding or our reasoning that will cause the mess up. So I want to make uh, an interesting point here that when talking about arguments. There's a difference between an irrational argument and an unrational argument. An irrational argument is something that does not make rational sense. It's, there's a problem in it. There's something foolish in it. An unrational argument is just an argument that can't be explained. You might have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that you say, I can't explain it. It does not make it irrational, but it is definitely 
unrational. Does everyone get that distinction? Well, I hope so, because we're going to keep going. <laughs> Uh, another point uh, where a lot of people do get lost sometimes is that Christianity is always reasonable, but not always obvious. Two plus two equals four is both reasonable and obvious. My son, he's six years old and he's already got that one down. E equals MC squared. Reasonable, not obvious. It's very complicated. If someone can just give a brief explanation of how that works. No, we, we don't have time for that either. But my hope with all of this is that it gives you the assurance that any challenge that is brought against our faith, you don't have to know the answer. But rest assured that there is an answer and you can point people to the answer. Saying, I don't know, does not lose an argument. Making something up can really quickly lose an argument. So I just encourage you, if someone ever says something, you're like, I don't know, just say that. And, but also follow it up with, I'll see if I can look it up. I'll see if I can find the answer. And that way you can keep a conversation going. So that is establishing that reason and faith are allies. Now we're gonna move into a few arguments for the existence of God. And the reason we go here is because just having God exist, a God is the first step in believing in the God. So this morning, I'm going to give five arguments for the existence of God. These arguments are all very different. Some resonate really well with some people. Some of these, you'll think, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Some of them you will not understand, possibly. And that's okay. But each of these arguments do work for different people, depending on where they come from, their background, and their understanding of other things. So the first one is the argument from efficient cause. This argument basically says everything in our world is caused by something else in our world. You're here because your parents gave birth to you. They're here because their parents gave birth to them. So on, so forth, all the way back it goes. For us, it goes back to creation. For an evolutionist or a Big Bang theory, it would say, oh, it goes back to, you know, all different things, all the way to that point of the Big Bang. And it's not just people or creatures, it's also uh, mountains being formed. Every object, grass growing, uh, planets in motion, all of these things were caused by something else. It's like a giant string of dominoes. And something pushed that first domino, and that hit the next domino, next domino, next domino. The problem is, when you go back far enough, you end up with something that you need to have a cause outside of everything else. There must be something that by its nature is eternal and has no cause, and who can also enact cause by its own will in order to get all this started. And that is what we would call God. So that is the argument from efficient cause. The next one is the design argument. And this one goes, the universe displays a staggering amount of intelligibility, both within the things we observe and how they interact with things outside themselves. It is normal to see in nature different beings working together to produce the same valuable end. In us, we have organs and systems working together to keep us alive in an amazingly complex fashion. You have ecosystems that rely on so many plants and animals working together to keep things sustained. Either this is the result of chance or intelligent design. 
there are statistically too many perfect systems for this to be chance. Therefore, the universe is the product of intelligent design. But design only comes from the mind of a designer. Therefore, the universe is the product of an intelligent designer, i.e. God. Now, some people might disagree with the preposition, there are too many perfect systems for this to be chance. And they would just say, well, no, it's still just chance, it's just because. Which is an interesting argument, because to have chance, that means that you say something happened by chance is to say it turned out different than expected. But chance means there are no expectations. And if there's no expectations, then you're comparing nothing with nothing and expecting nothing. And nothing is not an argument. What is it? Nothing. Good. All right. You're, you're still awake. That's just the test there. Uh, the, the next one that I'm going to talk about, this one is a very uh, philosophical, it's the most philosophical argument. It's often called uh, the most philosophical uh, proof for the existence of God. And it's the argument, uh, the ontological argument. I'm sorry. Ontology, for those of you who don't know, is the study of being. It goes like this. It is greater that a thing exists in the mind and in reality than to exist in the mind alone. God means that which a greater cannot be thought. Suppose God exists in the mind, but not in reality. Then a greater than God could be thought, everything he was before, but actually existing. But that's impossible, for God is that which is greater cannot be thought. Therefore, God exists in both the mind and in reality. Nope. Yep. Some people? Okay, yeah. <laughs> no worries. The next one is actually uh, one that I think you may have used with someone uh, and didn't really know that it is an argument for the existence of God. It's called the argument for desire. And it states that every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. But there exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, no creature can satisfy. Therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth and creatures, which can satisfy that desire. This something is what people call God and life with God forever. This is one of my favorite arguments. And the reason it is, is because even if it doesn't get people to the point of believing there is a God, it gets people thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit and that hole that's inside each and every one of them. It gives the Holy Spirit that opportunity just to start nagging and pulling and where they think, I do have a hole. Why is that hole there? So it's one of my favorites because it truly does start the working of the Holy Spirit to bring people to God. This last argument, I got, I got some guff because uh, I kind of gave the, the band a little, little heck for it because I think it's a dumb argument. But some people really love this argument and it like resonates 100% true. So it's an important one. It's called the argument from aesthetic experience. And it says, there is music and beauty. Therefore, there must be a God. That is all there is. And amen indeed. Yes. Some people that is like, yeah, that's the clearest argument out of all of them. I don't like it.
which is okay, because like I said, there are many different arguments for the existence of God, some that people will understand right away. Uh, there are so many more that I didn't mention. There's also different versions of ones I talked about. So if that's something you're interested in, look up some others. None of these might have really clicked with you, but there might be one out there that does. So I do encourage you to look those up. Uh, the last thing that we are going to talk about this morning is the problem of evil. And the reason we're going to talk about the problem of evil is that most atheists uh, use this as their one true argument to stand against the existence of God. Most atheistic arguments don't stand on their own, but they instead attack arguments created to prove the existence. So this one is one that they use, and they say, to prove that there is no God. And we're going to talk about it. Usually it looks something like this. If God is all good, he would will all good and no evil. And if God were all powerful, otherwise known as omnipotent, he would accomplish everything he wills. But evil exists as well as good. Therefore, either God is not all powerful, not all good, or both. So as I sat down to tackle uh, this last point, I realized that there are two main uh, ways you can go about uh, refuting this argument. And the first is to simply turn the argument right on its own head. Uh, Austin mentioned uh, this quote a while back. It's from Ravi Zacharias. And it's, it's a great, great way to respond to that. And it, it says this, when you say there's too much evil, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you, if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What again was your question? So that's a good way just to flip it right back on itself. And I think that's a satisfying answer for most people. Other people might really start getting down into terms and definitions and say, no, 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 by this, I'm going to define it this way. Uh, what, let's, let's get into it. What do we mean by evil? What do we mean by uh, uh, sin, suffering? Is that moral evil or physical evil? What, what about free will? There's lots of things that you can talk about in this. Are we a product of our environment? Is heredity all that matters? So many things you can break down depending on the person. But one thing that I left out is this idea of omnipotence, because that's the one point in here that we have time to talk about this morning. And the reason I want to talk about omnipotence is because it's, an, it's the basis of another very simple argument against the existence of God. I'm pretty sure we've all heard something along these lines, which would go, is God so powerful, he can microwave a burrito so hot, even he can't eat it? Has anybody heard something along those lines from someone at some point? So the basic breakdown here is one of contradiction. And God is not a God of contradiction. The ask here is, and for the object of evil that is, is why didn't God create a world where we had to love him? And the reason is because had to and love are mutually exclusive. So why doesn't God change what love is? Because then it isn't love. All that we know are not subjective truths. These aren't like rules to a game. These are things that God has laid forth. They come from his nature. It's not just this idea that we thought of. These are reflections of the one truth, God himself, 
and his nature. So when people ask things like this, well, why would God create a world with free will and then make it so that people can't sin? Because that would not be free will. It's asking, why aren't there round squares? Why aren't there colorless colors? Because it's stupid. <laughs> so even an omnipotent God cannot forcibly prevent sin without removing our freedom. And this cannot is not a wall that his power meets as if something outside himself. But it's something, instead, as C.S. Lewis put, nonsense does not cease to be nonsense when we add God can before it. God is not a God of nonsense. He's not a God of stupid contradictions. So that, does that make sense with everybody? Good, because that's where we're going to end today. No, but we're going to leave with uh, one other thing, uh, which is the question of where to go from here. Hopefully, this gave you a place to start maybe talking with someone who you know isn't a Christian and who you've heard say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Or maybe it's a way you can talk to someone who you've never had the, the guts to just start a conversation with because you're afraid they're going to ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. My hope is that today's talk removed some of those barriers from your thinking and from your acting. But ultimately, I want you all to know that the best argument for the existence of God and his plan for salvation through Jesus is encountering someone whose life is changed because of him. When people encounter the living God and his power, arguments seem less important. People are generally results-oriented. My life was going one way, Jesus entered my life, and now it's a totally different way. I was angry, and now I'm forgiving. I was depressed, and now I have joy. I was hopeless, and now I have hope. Encountering Jesus is far, far better than thinking about why he's worth encountering. This is why empowerment is so important. Because even the man who is too smart for God has a hard time rejecting him when his amputated arm suddenly grows back. For most people, the finisher will not be a great explanation of why God is good, but will instead be tasting and seeing that he is good. You guys stand and we're going to pray for the morning. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you that you are a God of reason and a God of understanding, Lord. And we thank, thank you so much that you gave us these minds with which we can understand part of you. But more importantly, importantly, Lord, we thank you that you sent your son that we may have right relationship with you again. Lord, I pray that everyone who leaves here today would leave with a boldness to share their faith, to talk with people about your truth and your love and who you are. Lord, let us not just be believers of your word, but doers as well. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We ask that you be with each person who leaves here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>